America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. This episode is a must listen, especially if you are a parent of a daughter. Julia Watson Carlson shows that a woman can be both strong and feminine. Julia earned female athlete of the Marine Corps, and she is an ace at shooting, winning 15 inter-service titles, 40 national titles, and five international military arms competition titles. She was the first woman to win at a national level. Julia served two deployments in the Middle East, one in Iraq and the other in Afghanistan. She retired from the Marines in 2016 and is still active today in the veteran community. Julia's American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Julia, and I am thrilled to have her because here we are in season three, and I have never had the opportunity to speak with a woman who served in the military. I've had a handful of guests who are women, but Julia is my first to have served in the military. I am thrilled to have her here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come and share your story with us. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about growing up? Well, I was um, born and raised here in Utah, and I am second of seven siblings. My parents were both school teachers. My grandfathers both served in World War II, and my dad was unable to serve in the military due to a foot injury. Um, that prevented him from being drafted into uh, Vietnam along with the rest of his buddies. I was a normal kid, I guess, by chance. Uh, you know, just se with seven kids in the house, it stayed pretty crazy and we stayed pretty busy. I think it was a normal upbringing. I danced and I started dancing in high school and then I started uh, shooting small bore and high power rifle in my junior and senior year. And that's what brought me into the community of military shooters that were in that sport. And that's what brought me into the military. Did you have people in your family who were into that sport? How did you come across that? I came across shooting just from my dad. He was an avid hunter, loved the mountains. He's a, a cowboy from Montana that ended up in Utah teaching ceramics and he brought the love of hunting and fishing into my life. And I started shooting through his example to me. Were you in competitions that you won awards at that time? Well, with the Utah State team, I won a couple, some state championships in air rifle and in small bore. And I ended up going to what's called the Junior Olympic Rifle Championships in at the Olympic Training Center. I had some good skills starting off and some good teachers and trainers. When you're in a sport that you get success 
in, in measurements early on, you tend to want to keep going at, at that to see how far you can go. I had some early success and that's why I kept going. It's because I really enjoyed a, an opportunity to win. Were you a natural born shooter or did it take a few times? There's a story that my dad tells and I'll, I'll tell it here. In order to hunt, you have to get your hunter safety card. And so you've got to go to hunter safety course. So I went and part of this course was you had to just shoot a small bore rifle and you had to just shoot a group. You have to show that you can handle the weapon safely and manipulate the weapon and you can at least shoot the, the paper target. Well, I didn't know, I didn't have any bad habits and they just said, okay, here's the rifle, point it here, this is what you do. And I shot a really, really small group and I didn't know any better, but the trainer came up to my dad with just wide eyes and said to my dad, you need to get this girl into competition. She's got some <laughs> natural talent. That's kind of how it started. And my dad got excited because he shot as, and my grandfather as well, and my uncles in Montana, they shot with their uh, small bore and their state groups there. And so having an opportunity to shoot with his daughter, my dad definitely started bringing me to Springville Mapleton Junior Rifle Club. And so that's where I started. You know, I have to tell you, it's so interesting because I am 51 years old and I am trying to think, Julia, I don't think that I have ever shot a gun before. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That's a little surprising. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't think I ever have. In fact, it wasn't until recently, my father-in-law is a retired colonel and he has been dying to take my kids to the gun range. And they finally went, I think, what was it, about a month ago? And they absolutely loved it. And he's taking them again. But I myself, I don't even think I have shot a BB gun. Nothing. Well, I think it's important for, even if you're not um, a fan of guns and shooting and, and, and having one in your home, I think it's important for everybody to at least experience it so that they know what to do in case they run across a weapon. It's about weapons handling. It's about safety. It's about taking a weapon from a, a child. Maybe a child found something. It's about being comfortable enough that you can make any environment safe when there's a weapon there. I have never even thought about it that way. I encourage you to go. You'll, you'll be surprised. There's, there's a level of fear and uncomfortableness that happens beforehand just because you're not um, aware of the, the power that the weapon has. And it also gives people a respect for that power. And people that respect weapons definitely treat them differently than those that don't. Back to the military, you said that being a part of this community introduced you to the military. When was it in your journey that you really thought, mm, maybe this is a road I want to go down? Okay, this is kind of a fun story. I actually, when I, I remember in grade school when we were being taught about military and war and things like that, I always thought, I want to be one of those soldiers, but I kind of forgot about that thought and feeling until I started shooting competitively at the national championships, which are actually going on right now in, in uh, Camp Perry, Ohio. They have um, what's called 
um, the small arms firing school and the army um, puts that on the, the top shooters in the army and they teach you some extra skills that help you. And so I went through that as a 16 year old kid. And then I was just so excited about being around all of the competitors, the civilians and the state teams that came from all across the nation to one place. And it was kind of a unique experience for the 16 year old kid from Utah to meet these people from all over the place and then learn from them as well. And that's what I started seeing with the military um, service members who were shooters as well. They would share their knowledge and teach you and help you. So I was borrowing my dad's shooting jacket in uh, my first couple of years and I had saved up enough money because, you know, we're a family of uh, with seven kids and on a school teacher's budget, there wasn't a lot to go around. And so I was borrowing gear and I was using my dad's shooting jacket which was too large for me. So I had saved up enough money to buy my own jacket at the Nationals in um, 1993. So I was 17 at this point. And what was interesting is, unbeknownst to me, I found out that my dad's check had bounced for the entry fees and I had to pay my money that I'd saved for my jacket so I could compete. So here Aww. I was all the way out in Ohio as a 17 year old kid and no shooting jacket. And we're talking about, it's not small bore and air rifle. A shooting jacket really helps with your position. And they're anywhere from two to $300. It can go up from there because they're leather, they're cut specifically, they're high end. The word got out that this kid, this young girl from Utah did not have a shooting jacket. And the Marine Corps team pulled their money together along with some other folks and they gave me the money for a shooting jacket. Well, I, I shot fairly well that year, but that was the year that every single trophy was won by the Marines. And that was also the year I went through the Marine Corps Junior Clinic. So they took the top few junior shooters in every state and they held a special training clinic so not only did I get specific extra help and training by these master uh, shooters, these champion level shooters, but they bought me a jacket and then they won everything. That was a clean sweep for the Marine Corps that year. And I remember thinking I was sitting there at their award ceremony at the nationals and I had the thought cross my head and in my mind, I want someone to see me the way I saw them as these ambassadors, as these phenomenal shooters, as these Marines in uniform. I wanted to have that uniform and, and stand where they stood. So I went home and I finished my senior year and I had actually enlisted into the delayed entry program to the Marines February of my senior year. That's what brought me into the Marine Corps was those, uh, those shooters from that year. Did your parents have any trepidation about you joining? <laughs> of course. You're yes, laughing, you know. so I guess that means yes, right? <laughs> well, you, you have this misconception. Um, in some communities, you know, we're traditional Utah area. We're, we're patriotic for the most part. But 
when I was coming through high school, women, it, it wasn't, I, I had uh, one person, t one lady tell me that it wasn't ladylike to join the, the Marine Corps. She actually told me that. And, and I thought, well, sure it is. The female Marines that I've run across are very, very feminine and they're strong and they're just great examples. And so I think it was hard for my parents to see me as their daughter to go into this war machine, if you, if you will, because Marines are war fighters first and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I calmed their fears and I, you know, said, mom, dad, this is, this is the right thing for me. This is what I want to do. And so they were very supportive. My mom cried and my dad cried a little bit, but when they saw that, that I was going to be okay and that I wasn't going to turn into this, whatever misconception that they had, that I think that they were um, definitely proud of me after that. I can totally see their end of it knowing even just that you're going away for such an extended period of time is enough. Yeah. And then to add that element of danger into it. Holy yeah. cow. The other thing was, is that I was the first out of all my siblings to leave the house because my sister was getting ready to go on a, a church mission. So she hadn't left. And, and so it was like your first child leaving and the anxiety and the, the unknowns of, of that. I'm getting to that point. My daughter is going to be a senior in high school. We're coming really close to that. And it's scary. It's a scary thing to think of them leaving the nest. Yeah. I just dropped my youngest daughter off to um, Virginia and Southern Virginia University. That's far away, and, but what a beautiful place to go. Oh, it is beautiful. I spent some time there in the military. Well, in Quantico. I left for boot camp in um, October of 1994. Were you nervous? Were you second guessing yourself? No, because when I got there, I was exhausted. I was tired. And I just don't remember not being tired after that point. But I remember some of the other young ladies that were going through training. Some of them were crying and they wanted to go home. And, and I looked at it and I'm like, you signed this document. You raised your hand. I'm like, you got to do this. This is not just summer camp. You're serving your country and you've got to go through these wickets. And it was a very difficult um, experience to go through boot camp. But every day I remember telling myself motivational things about, you know, my goals, which was to get on the Marine Corps team. My, my main goal was to, I wanted to be a Marine. And I told myself over and over again during training that I was not going to leave here unless I had the title of Marine. And that's what got me through those days. Do you train with the man? Is it co-ed or is it separate? It is co-ed now, but when I went through, it was very separated. And during the time of boot camp, there was never a moment of, I, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too hard. You were determined to get through. Of course there was moments, but you get through that moment where you feel like you want to give up and you're like, oh, I just got through that. Okay. If I can do that, I can do the next thing. And then you slowly get to this point where, okay, bring it on. What's next? If I can get through yesterday, what's worse than and doing the same thing over again today? Wow. How long is boot camp and where did you go after boot camp? It was 13 weeks and I went to boot camp in Paris Island, South Carolina. And, and after that, so I enlisted 
in the engineer field and I ended up getting um, assigned to the uh, heavy equipment mechanics. So diesel engines, road construction, earth movers, things like that. So I went, after boot camp, I went to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and that's where they had the diesel uh, mechanic training for heavy equipment. And so I was there for another some, I think three to four months of training, if not more. The time, you know, that we're talking 20 some years ago, trying to remember timelines. It's like another lifetime, right? <laughs> yeah. And then when I was done with training, I went to Camp Pendleton, California, and I was with an engineer uh, support battalion there in California. And that is where I was able to uh, earn a spot onto the shooting team. How do you earn a spot on the shooting team? What's involved with that? That's a great question. It's a kind of a selection trial basis. But the first thing I want to say is that it's all about having the opportunity. There are thousands of Marines out there that just don't get given the opportunity to go and just try and compete. So I was just a young Marine. I was a Lance Corporal. And I remember I went into my marksmanship training unit for each battalion has a training unit. And in my battalion, I knew the course of how to get there because I had already seen and talked to the Marines on the national level team. So when I went to my training unit, I said, hey, when is the next division match? Because you have to shoot in a division match in order, you have to place in the top 10% of a division level in order to go to the Marine Corps level, well, they, where they take all of the top 10% of each division category and then they compete amongst themselves there. And then at the Marine Corps level is when they select the shooters that they want to take to inner service and then the nationals. I go to my training unit and I say, when is the next competition? I'm a rifle shooter. And I was kind of laughed out of the office. And then I went back to my floor sergeant in my maintenance shop and I said, Sergeant Allward is his name. And I said, Sergeant Allward, I want to shoot. And he's like, you can't shoot. And I said, yes, I can. So you so were I, laughed out. They didn't believe you could do it because you're a woman? Well, I don't know if that was it because I was a young Marine and I just got stationed there and I hadn't been there very long. And I don't think it was, maybe there was a part of it because I was a female, but I don't know what their motivation was. Maybe because you were so inexperienced at that time. Right. I think it's just because I was a new Marine. So I found out that there was a, an intramural match, which is just kind of a predecessor to divisions. And so I went back to the shop and I said, Sergeant Allward, let me go shoot this match. And he's like, you can't go, you can't shoot because he needed me to work on the equipment. And I, so I made him a bet. I said, I bet you that if I win the intramural rifle championship, will you let me go compete at divisions? And he's like, okay, I'll bet you. Because intramurals was about a week long but divisions was another two weeks on top of that. He was willing to let me go for one week and fail, or so he thought, and then get me back in the shop. And so how many other I, people were you competing with for that? Oh, there was a few hundred from the base. Yeah, it was a pretty, the intramurals is a pretty big match. It's, okay. it's, it's rifle and pistol, but they separate the categories of the winners. So you could do rifle, overall rifle and still get a, an opportunity to go to divisions. So if you win that, that's really saying something. Yes. 
it's kind of an entry level competition between the battalions in the local area. But you're still up um, against a lot of people. Yes, yes. So what's funny is that when I went, uh, I won the rifle championship and I brought this tall little plastic trophy back to my <laughs> unit and you, you should have seen Sergeant Allward. He was an old salty Marine and he always had a coffee cup and a cigarette in his mouth. And I remember when I walked in to the shop, his mouth kind of like his cigarette just kind of dangled like cause his just jaw dropped. He knew he had to um, fulfill his, the bet, which was that if I won, I got to go to divisions. So I went to divisions and I won what's called high tyro. It's the first year shooter. So I went to uh, divisions and I won high tyro. And then when you get, if you place, you automatically get orders, which are out of my company's hands. And I left after that. So I was gone for three total weeks. And then I get orders to be gone to Marine Corps championships for all of the four, there's four division matches around the world. And I went to the Marine Corps championships and I shot well enough that the Marine Corps team picked me up in 1996 for their summer team. And so Sergeant Allward didn't see me from April through August at that point. That was, if it hadn't have been for Sergeant Allward allowing me to go, cause he could have said no, I would not have had that experience to come full circle from when I was a kid two years prior to be on the stage at the nationals in the uniform to realize my dream of being on the Marine Corps shooting team. How exciting. It was a very humbling experience. After you're done with that competition and being on that team, does it go back to normal? Well, I don't know if I ever have been normal. But <laughs> I was uh, promoted meritoriously on the firing line by the Commandant of the Marine Corps. That's the senior ranking official in the Marine Corps. He happened to see me and another shooter, another Lance Corporal during the inter-service rifle championships. And he was so impressed with our shooting abilities that these two young Marines could perform under that kind of pressure against all the other branches at the time. After we were done shooting, he promoted us to corporal. So when I get, went back to my unit, I wasn't a, a Lance Corporal anymore. I was more in a leadership role, not too high of a leader, but it's a pretty awesome uh, rank in the Marine Corps to be a corporal and um, a peer of now my Sergeant Allward. So when I got back, things were a little bit different. When did you go to Iraq? So I went... After that, I did go to, I got permanent orders to the rifle team for a number of years. I went there for another three years, and then I went um, back to the fleet as a staff sergeant and worked as a maintenance chief in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And that's when I got married and I had a baby, and then I, I moved back to Utah after that. So in 2001, I transferred to the reserves. And I was with Charlie Company 4th LAR here in Riverton, Utah. I helped them get out the door on their first deployment to Iraq. And I uh, kind of was feeling like I was missing out on being able to serve in this overseas like that. So 
an opportunity came up and I was asked to go and after I had my second child. So in 2006, I was deployed to Iraq to support the civil affairs group out of Captain Hamilton. And that's when I went to Iraq. That brings a whole other level to deployment. You're married and you have to leave two little ones behind. I did, it was very difficult. My sister and her husband ended up uh, taking care of him for that time for that year. Were you there for a year then? Well, the training, I was there for six months, but the training, during the training, I couldn't take care of the kids. Oh. Um, it was in California and they lived here in Utah. So they were watched by my sister during that time. What was your assignment in Iraq? I initially started out, um, I was the public affairs uh, officer for the third civil affairs group. So my job was to work with local media or embed, embedded media, news reporters, and then also tell the story of what we were doing, our unit, what we were doing, what does civil affairs mean? It's to support the local government, uh, help with education, reconstruction, economic development, governance, just rehabilitating the area. So when we go into these um, areas and we fight and we destroy, it's what we do to help. Stability operations is another word for it with the local people so that when we leave an area, it's, uh, it can function and be a little bit more self-sufficient after the fighting. Did you feel like most of the Iraqi people or the Iraqi people that you worked with appreciated us being there, appreciated you being there? I think so. The local people that we worked with, the sheikhs and the imams and the local government um, were very appreciative. There was still some fear of working with us for retribution of uh, the Al-Qaeda in the area. And some people did lose their lives for working with us. But I think for the most part, on the family level, because I started working with the women and children and working with, tried to start what's called the Iraqi Women's Engagement Program to help gain access to the other half of the information, which is through the women and the family and what their needs were. Through the Iraqi Women's Engagement Program, there was a sense of, when I worked with those people, of admiration that we were more of a benevolent presence, really trying to help them to be self-sufficient and make a difference. Were you ever nervous being there or afraid or sure. a little bit hesitant? Yeah, there was different situations that called for different emotions and reactions. There were times where you felt like this is a bad idea or like, hey, we need to be here, let's do this. There's, of course, the fear of the unknown, like if I'm going to walk out the door today or go on this patrol, what's going to happen? Um, if I work with this family or work with this government leader, you know, what's going to happen to the programs and the money we're putting into the this thing? Is this going to be uh, wasteful? Because we're thinking, you know, we're looking at using taxpayer dollars, American taxpayer dollars to implement programs and put funding into reconstruction or educational projects, things like that. And uh, of course, there's fear for your life. There's fear for the Marine next to you. There's also fear of retribution for the local people that were working with you or willing to talk to you or willing to take on a construction project or et cetera. 
being there, did you ever see, and you don't have to go into detail, did you ever see things that still today may haunt you? Yes, I did. How do you deal with that? I have a few different perspectives on this. So when everybody experiences the difficult things, it's what you do with those difficult experiences. It's what you do afterwards. So for instance, when you witness something that's a horrible atrocity, death, destruction, you take that back home with you. You know, I'm here. I'm living in the world still. What do I do with that? And I, the things that I tell myself is, you know, when even your worst day is better than no day at all. Because all you have to do is go to a military cemetery, specifically Arlington National Cemetery, and you stand on those hills. You know, even the worst things that have happened to you are better than not having a day at all. And some of those guys have given the ultimate sacrifice. And I, I look at that perspective to, you know, how do we deal with trauma? And I also look at it from the perspective of being completely grateful, just having a heart full of gratitude for, you know, I look at some of the, the hard things I saw with the local people and the livelihood and the, their prospects for education, you know, especially little girls, my two girls, I, and I compared their lifestyle with what my girls' abilities and their freedoms. And that's what kind of ties into what makes this country great is the aspect of overcoming hard things by looking at your gratitude. The gratitude that I have, just the physical things, the physical space for freedom to walk around, to go get education, to choose what you want to do and be as a girl. As a, as a woman to uh, own your own store or pick what you want to study, pick who you want to marry. And looking at the little things that we can be grateful for here, even though they're, they're hard because choices are hard, disappointment's hard. Uh, it doesn't even compare to the lack of freedom and choices that these girls have over there. Those are some of the things that I use to say, okay, yeah, I saw hard things, but look at this beautiful free country that we have. It gives me more perspective to be grateful and it does calm my heart. Did you rely on your faith a lot when you were there? I did. I think you have to because you start to question, why am I here? You know, you start seeing so many hard days, one after the other, and your anxiety and the fear of what you're doing. If you don't have a faith in a higher power or in your mission there, then it does make things more difficult. You stayed there a year and then came home then, correct? Well, you were six was, months and then six months there and then home. Yeah, there was about... A month on the back end so but there was a six month in the middle do you feel like that time there changed you oh definitely definitely it changes you so I'm a kind of sidetrack here I'm a the mentor coordinator for the fourth district veteran treatment court and I had one of this is a soldier that had said something recently and 
I'll, I'll share it here. He said, you know, when you go over there, just the things you experience and the things that you see, part of you is left there and never comes home. Mm. And the way he described that, it's so true. And things change you because of what you see, how you respond to it, who doesn't come home, the friends that you've lost, your buddies that change. And then when you come home, you can't, sometimes you can't believe that people are going to act so harshly towards the freedom. And it's hard to see people acting irresponsibly to things that they should take, that they should have more gratitude for, that they should be thankful for. And so it does affect you, the coming home and the change of lifestyle, because you've changed so much, it does affect your kids and how you respond as a mom and or dad. Was it hard for you to reintegrate yourself into normal life or was it a fairly easy adjustment? I had some difficulties um, just because my kids um, struggled a bit and they didn't understand, they were so young, they were three and six when I left. Uh. And so mom coming home, they, they changed and I changed and we had to kind of meld back together and figure out what our new, the way we communicate was different um, because of the changes that we all made. So it was a struggle, but we made it. Were they nervous at all to get close to you, especially the three-year-old? Oh no, they were very clingy. They didn't oh. want they didn't, they actually would fight for attention after Aww. that between the two of them. They were very clingy and didn't want to leave my side. They didn't want me to go to work because they were afraid that I wasn't going to come back again. Aww. But we worked through it. Did you have to leave again after that or were you home? I was home for a little while and then I ended up moving with the girls to Virginia and we were there for a couple years and then I ended up going back to Afghanistan but this oh. time they were they were able to stay with their dad in England so they still had a, a parent with them where they instead of just staying with their aunt before so plus they were older and they'd been through it so it, it was a lot easier for them as a military child to go through that how long were you in Afghanistan? I'm looking here. Did I miss that you were in Afghanistan? Oh, yes. There you go. Right there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> did you do the same thing in Afghanistan? I didn't do so much public affairs. I did more of the civil affairs side and did more work with the women and children. I'm curious if you found Iraq and Afghanistan different as far as maybe the acceptance from the people there or the violence where they you know, on a different time? Did you find one more scary than the other? I wouldn't say scary. I think the, the fear level is about the same, but in Afghanistan, the local people did respond differently. I think there's a higher level of lack of just basic knowledge and education on stuff. Whereas in Iraq, uh, more women had had some. I ran across more women, older women who before the Al-Qaeda cracked down on women and going to school and college, there were teachers and engineers and some of that knowledge 
um, had been passed down to the younger girls where they knew that there at one point had been opportunities for women. But then in contrast, in Afghanistan, a lot of the women didn't have a history that they could recall as far as women going to from the women that I ran across in the villages in, in Helmand, the men were the same way, that it was not even discussable for women and children to be educated or have um, anything but familial responsibilities. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is. And the other contrast I had was the women in Iraq were, even though different tribes were cautious but willing to work with one another but in Afghanistan you had sisters from the same tribe that didn't trust each other to work with them to encourage them to do things within within their cultural umbrella within their cultural limitations to do things for themselves to become more self-sufficient or um, safer when we're talking about a little bit of more freedom from the Taliban it was definitely more difficult to work with the men and women to help women. I think that most of us, if we haven't seen it, haven't experienced it, even as you were telling me about it, I still have a hard time comprehending the lack of freedom that's there. And maybe that is a huge issue with what we deal with today is that we don't really understand. It's hard to imagine. It is until you see the limited mobility of these women to travel places, to um, get access to education. Even, even the men are at a disadvantage because, for example, a hydroelectric well was partially emplaced into a water outlet and the local people were in uproar and very angry about, they called it the dynamo, that it was gonna steal their water. They really thought that this thing that was placed just capture the current and turn it into electricity was going to take and steal their water. There's just examples of that all over the place of this lack of just simple education of the potential for economic growth and overall stability of government and I think it's not just the women it's the the whole society as um, and, and I'm not an expert by any means this is just the few anecdotal things that I saw in comparison to Iraq and Afghanistan when I was working with the local people there's plenty of cultural specialists that could really talk about it, but after this experience and people wanting to know what it is that I did, I started doing some research and this might help you in the future if you wanna go down the path of what makes stable government in societies as far as families. The Women in Stats project that's done by BYU, they've done these metric systems where they look across the world and they look at different things regarding just women. If the women have access to healthcare, so there's healthcare, education, whether or not they feel safe in their own home, 
whether or not they have any type of economic input as far as maybe working from home or bringing any kind of money back into the household. There's all these metrics in the, in the, the governments or the states that have the lowest marks. It mirrors, they're the exact states that have the most political problems, they have the most death and mortality rates, and these are this, the areas in the world that have the highest risk for Taliban and Al-Qaeda and for some other entity to come in and just destroy peace. It all factors into whether these women are equal-footed with the men in society. It's so amazing to look at if freedom revolves around education for women, then we've got to really make sure that our, not just our girls, but our boys are educated to see it's so important to have education and to use it so that, that we don't lose those freedoms. That's amazing. Women play a pivotal part then the more freedom that women have in these different parts of the world equals a more stabilized government and a more stabilized life. That is so interesting. Yeah. And they've been doing these studies over a decade now. The data doesn't lie. You can watch the trends of when things start getting better, there's more women involved. There's more access to education. They're overall healthier societies. So the breakdown of freedom in a society could really be traced back to, are the women cared for? Are they part of the process? And, you know, what can we do in our own areas so that we don't have our society degrade? That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Were you able to do more shooting while you were in the military? I did. I shot in between the deployments and then afterwards I won. The, I was the first female to win the national championship. I won, I think, five times between the two different types of matches. Was it in the Olympics this year that the first woman soldier, right, didn't win a gold medal? She did. Okay, that's what I thought. Was she, she was Marines, wasn't she? No, she was oh, okay. the Army Marksmanship Unit. Okay, but that's all right for you then, right? <laughs> You're okay with no, that? <laughs> no, Any Well, first of all, it's uh, an American that won the gold. Yes. Second of all, she's a female military service member. And not only did she win, she um, set a new record. What was the gold medal in then exactly? Do you know the name of the um, event? Um, Skeet. Skeet, okay. Oh, wow. Uh, Amber English. That is really cool, isn't it? Yes. When yes. did you retire from the Marines? I retired in 2016. So it's been a while. What has the military and shooting taught you? Well, there's kind of two different questions there. The military taught me that, you know, I just an overall gratitude and humility for the legacy that came behind and to be a part of that. It's a huge honor to be in the military for our great country. It is. Um, there's so many of us 
if you look at the percentage of how many people actually serve and then who go back into society, they're just, for the most part, great people. And it's, it's an honor to be a veteran and to have served. But I look back at the legacy of other people that I've served with and those that have served before my time. And they're just amazing stories out there. And as far as the lesson of shooting, I'm still learning lessons every day. But some of my favorite um, is our, when you're on the firing line and it's just you and your rifle, you're the one that's pulling the trigger. You're the one that's aligning the sights. No, you're in complete control of what you're physically doing. Now there's other elements like the wind or rain or sun that can come in. But if you're focusing on the things that you don't have control over, then the things you have control over don't get taken care of. I love that. So there's a lot of little lessons on competing, you know, the mindset to, to overcome setbacks. If I drop some points, how do I keep going and still have the winning mindset? How do I improve? How do I teach better? Those are some of the things that I've learned and been able to take with me is to really work with people to teach them how to be a better shooter. Because that's the other part of what I did with competition is I would also teach combat marksmanship and um, the competition side as well. My favorite part of being able to shoot well is teaching someone else a skill and then having them use it and get on the stage and win something or come back to me and say, hey, master sergeant or gunny or whatever my rank was, I tried that and I am a better shooter because what you taught me. Are you still teaching today? A little bit. I've been helping out some Utah State guys that are um, trying to become distinguished. So hopefully they will um, report back to me. They're at the nationals right now. So they'll hopefully tell me that they did well. We'll work on it. You're the mother and stepmother of six children, is that correct? My husband had uh, six boys and one girl. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. And then my stepson has two, two little girls. And then my stepdaughter has a little girl. And so we have three granddaughters now. And have you taken your children or grandchildren shooting? Have any of them fallen in love with it? I think they love it. Um, I don't think we're there at the, where they want to compete. But no, my grandkids are too young. So I've done a little bit of fishing with my oldest granddaughter. She caught her first fish the other day. It was awesome. Her little squeal when she saw her fish coming out of the water. It was pretty cool. Good feeling. Now that you are retired from the military, what are you doing? I work for my brother. Watson Motor Works. I help him out in his parts department and help him sell cars. My brother was a well-done firefighter for 16 years here in Utah County. When he left firefighting, he wanted to do, he just loves cars, so I thought I'd help him out. And I'm also the mentor coordinator for the 4th District Veteran Treatment Court. Um, Veteran Treatment Court is where you have different service members who struggle with PTSD and end up with some substance abuse problems and instead of sticking them in jail for theft or for um, substance like a DUI or something like that, we get them out and we get them into detox or if they're homeless, we get them into a sober living facility 
and we work with the Veterans Affairs with the mental health department. We get them the help that they need. And if they make it through the program and they stay sober, they have the ability to have their record either expunged or significantly lowered. And so they have an opportunity to start their lives over and uh, have a clean slate with a healthy um, way to cope with their PTSD. So that's what I do right now. And I also, I do too many things. Keeps you out of trouble. It's hard. That's another thing is that if you serve, you know, somebody that's struggling with mental health or just general happiness, if you are finding ways to serve, it really helps you in ways, in leaps and bounds. And so when I got back, I was struggling and I decided I wanted to do something. So I was talking with my husband one day and we were coming up with some ideas and we came up with um, what's called Doc and Gunnies. And it's a little community uh, service effort where we help veterans through participation in the arts. And so I put on art exhibits. I find art, veteran artists, I get their stories and I put their art up along with their story of how they heal through art. And it's called Healing Through the Arts, and we call it Doc and Gunnies. And then to go back to the hospitality question in the very beginning of hospitality management, where you asked what I did with that, is I just used candy, and I sell that to help fund the art exhibits and to help veterans through the arts. Where do you do the art exhibits and when? Well, my last one... COVID kind of stopped it a little bit, but my last one was just this, earlier this month at the state capitol, actually, in the rotunda. It was called Hope on the Hill, and we had a bunch of veteran organizations come out, and it was a suicide prevention dinner, and it was free for veterans, and it was just an art exhibit and auction, and we were able to sell most of the items, most of the art, to go back into next year's Hope on the Hill exhibit and dinner. Dang, I wish I would have known about that. I should have talked to you sooner, right? I would have been there. How cool is that? It was super fun. And what's interesting is because we focus on not just sharing the art, but their story, it really connects differently with people on this type of exhibit because then they can be more connected to maybe something within themselves, like photography, for instance, everybody can take a picture. But to resonate with the story of taking the picture and how it helped them, it could encourage that person who's reading the story to go and do the same and then therefore help themselves. Is there any advice that you might give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? Sure. You've got to have a strong sense of who you are before you go in. It's important to, to have some goals and aspirations. And especially if you want to serve in the military, it's a great experience. But you have to stick to your morals. Realize that you're a part of a big picture. There's a lot of pitfalls that some young women can get into early on in the military, just, just like young men can. And with that said, it's a great experience. The physical aspect is very demanding and as well as the mental aspect. So you've got to mentally prepare yourself to tell yourself you're going to get through these challenges 
especially during your first year or so because of the difficulty on the mental side. What does America mean to you? America is a land of freedom, uh, it's hope, it's opportunity. If you look at the legacy of those who have came before us to make it what it is, it should motivate you to be better. America is about the opportunity to become a better person and a better citizen. It's a joyful term. When I hear the word America or United States of America, it's truly a blessing to be here and to be a a member of the society and uh, to be a United States citizen. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Julia's American story. She is such a strong example for women, young and old, and I am very grateful for the opportunity that I had to learn from her wisdom. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and believe it's important that these stories are shared, please do your part. I can't do this alone. Share with family and friends. Subscribe. Leave a rating. Leave a review. It helps in more ways than you know. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 is quickly approaching. And to commemorate and remember this tragic day, This next week, I will be doing something a little bit different. Monday through Thursday, there will be four mini-episodes from people in all walks of life and their memories of that day. And on Friday, I have a very unique episode. John was near Ground Zero that day, and he will share with us his memories of that long, painful day. See you then.